welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. If you've been following the series, you'll know that we talked to Ian Walker, the winning skipper of the 2014 edition, and he told us a little story about a young British 23-year-old sailor who applied for an internship on an America's Cup programme. And that person, Simon Fisher, since went on to navigate for Ian Walker in his winning Ocean Race campaign. So we thought it'd be a good idea to sit down with the man himself and let him tell his side of the story, plus get an insider view as to what it takes to be a great navigator. Simon Fisher has had a few positions on the scoreboard with his five laps of the planet, from chasing the pack to fighting for the front. But it was with apparent ease in 2015 that he won on board Abu Dhabi Ocean Racing with a leg to spare. That victory, clearly a reward for years of hard work. But Simon is a sailor that seems to enjoy racing with his peers as much as those victories. In 2005, he said, I'm lucky that the people that I looked up to and inspired me and helped me with my sailing career are now among my good friends. Simon, thank you very much for for talking to me. That's kind of where I wanted to start because I've been wanting to talk to you for for a while and you're a busy sailor. So it's been difficult to sort of pin you down. But one of the things that that has done is I spoke to Ian Walker not long ago and he told me a story that I'd never heard before about a young 23-year-old British sailor plucky enough to try out for an America's Cup team back then GBR Challenge um, and maybe it didn't quite go the way that that young sailor wanted to, but it led on to something pretty good. Can you pick up that story for us? Sure, sure. I think I know what you're talking about. Obviously, um, yeah, the GBR Challenge was like the first British America Cup campaign, I think, since since 86 or 87. So when it was all sort of happening in the UK and I had various friends there, I was obviously really excited to be, you know, find a way to get involved. And I, I had a few cracks at it. I mean, I had a, a good friend of mine, Boise, he was sort of, you know, Kind of pushing my thing for helping him with the rigging, and uh, and then I was sailing with uh, with Chris Main a lot of the time on the on the Far Forty Warlord. Who was uh, he was our tactician, and I was the boat captain, and uh, I sort of pestered him a bit about see if he could get me in, and 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 so by one way or another, I got a sort of trial in the summer when they were looking for for new recruits. But um, I guess with no America's Cup experience, and uh, I wasn't an Olympic medalist or, or an you know, Olympian or anything like that, then I was just sort of some random kid from Essex probably, but, uh, you know, yeah, it sort of didn't go quite the way I planned. And, but, uh, but I don't know, I, I remember the trial well. And I, I remember the, uh, the first day sailing on an America's cup boat was quite a daunting experience. I remember sitting there by the primary wing, sort of waiting for everything to happen. And the, the mainsail went up past me and the sail numbers were bigger than I was. So at this point I've only ever sailed on like a 40 footer or I think I'm not even sure if I'd sailed on a boat with a pedestal on it. So there was this like monster of a boat with six pedestals and all this going on. And, uh, yeah, I spent a few days hanging on the end of the jib sheet with, uh, mates of mine sort of poking me in the back telling me what to look at and what to say but uh <laughs> but no it was a fantastic experience and, and then I learned a heap and uh unfortunately I wasn't straight into the team at that point but um after a good summer of sailing with a few other guys in GBR Challenge and uh yeah a bit more pestering of Ian he, he eventually uh, cracked and got me down to New Zealand for a bit of a trial and yeah, I uh, started off sort of staying in the YMCA in uh, in Auckland across the road from the team hotel and uh yeah just mucked in really and uh and yeah, I guess sort of the, the bulk of my, or the main bit of my sailing career really kicked off there. And I'm, I'm yeah, really grateful for that opportunity. And uh, yeah, really happy that I sort of stuck at it and 
pestered people <laughs> until I got in. What I find amazing about that is, is not so much um, you as a young sailor were prepared to go, look, I don't want to get paid. I'm just going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen for myself because you do see those people doing that. And, and, and I can empathize with that. What I find amazing is it's Ian Walker that you're then navigating for in, you know, twice on Abu Dhabi ocean racing. And then the one, you know, the edition where you guys were victorious, did it feel strange having to talk to somebody who you'd been, for want of a better term, begging for a chance to go and sail on these really cool boats to now be saying, no, no, Ian, trust me, we need to be going left here. You know, that, that sort of dynamic must have evolved quite abruptly over the years. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a nice story, really. You know, he was like obviously the most senior team, the, the figure in the team with the GBR. And I was obviously like the, one of the youngest guys just sort of trying to get experience. But yeah, it's really nice that, you know, over the years we've, we've sort of, sailed with each other quite a bit and and we obviously had the whole the whole of the 11 12 campaign and i actually came into that team just to sort of help out and just in case jules was going to get pulled away to the america's cup as a sort of potential navigator and then naturally you know the cup kind of all blew up and turned into a deed of gifting and jules continued with the team as a navigator and i uh, i sort of managed to well stayed on as a, as a trimmer driver so uh, that was sort of yeah it was, it was actually quite nice and and it was actually a great race did not have the responsibility of navigation, but or being a navigator, but it kind of all sort of led into to our campaign in the '65, where we were less crew, and you know there was a bit more emphasis on on you know the navigator doing a bit more sailing and all that sort of stuff. It sort of was quite all sort of fitted in quite well to uh, towards that '65 campaign, which obviously obviously had the result we uh, we wanted. Let's talk about the navigation because um, it would be quite tempting, I think, for a lot of people when they start getting some really onto some really cool boats, like, you, you know, you mentioned being on board an old America's cup class five boat back in the day, grab your winch handle, keep quiet, try and do your job, keep your head down sort of thing. But being a navigator on a boat means standing tall, putting your arm up, giving your opinions and, and taking an awful lot of responsibility. Um, and your first, um, ocean race, this was 2005, six, Abin two, you're navigating on board that. What? Why did you? Were you seeking to be a navigator from word one? Um, no, I sort of ended up being a navigator a bit by accident, and actually, sort of, GBR Challenge was was quite responsible for that. that sort of my, my spot on the boat when we were training at GBR Challenge, when, when I, certainly when I started, was half grinder. So I used to sit next to the navigator. So I'd sit next to Jules or Derek and be looking over their shoulder and asking questions. And I guess I've, I've always been really sort of fascinated about what makes boats go fast and all the performance information was coming into the, you know, into the deck screen and, and, and learning about how to evaluate performance and that sort of stuff sort of triggered my interest, I guess. And then, uh, you know, as, as the team got busier and we had two boats and new boats and, and, and Derek, who was our navigator, one of our navigators and also the sort of head of the design team got more and more busy with the new boat. So, uh, when, uh, when we needed a navigator, I kind of stuck my hand and said, yeah, I'll have a go <laughs> on the B boat at GBR challenge. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then after that, um, I get, I just get, got more and more into navigating. Um, yeah, I actually remember I, I started up with Christabella. It was an IMS boat in, uh, on the IMS circuit in Spain. And, uh, I remember the first season I did that, I got asked to sort of come and navigate and everyone was like, well, why you got sci-fi navigating? Isn't he a trimmer? And now if I go trim for a trim on a boat, everyone goes, oh, new navigators. <laughs> No, but uh, yeah, I, I got into navigating sort of, sort of a bit by accident in that way, and then 
is actually when I was, I started to think, you know, maybe if I'm going to be a navigator, then well, obviously I need to, you know, <laughs> do a navigator's race like the ocean race. And, uh, yeah, while I was working with, uh, with the French America's cup team, actually K challenge, um, I guess that was in 2004, the, uh, the opportunity came up for, for ABN AMRO 2, which is going to be an under 30 boat. So, uh, yeah, I figured that if I was a navigator, then I should, I should get involved and try and do an ocean race. <laughs> It's it's a dynamic that I'm really fascinated in, b- b- being a navigator and and um, what it's like when things go right and what it's like when things go wrong. Because th- th- that old saying is that if a boat wins, it's because of good crew work, and if it loses, it's because of bad navigation. And you know, every armchair fan of the ocean race will say, "Oh, look, that boat's behind because they didn't get the shift or they went the wrong way of the weather." For you, do you feel that? Do you feel that you have an unfair amount of pressure on the navigator's shoulders? Or, or is that something that you're like, no, this is, this is why I'm here. I like this amount of scrutiny. Um, it's interesting, actually, because obviously, um, you know, the first few races I did with, with Avian Amro and then Telefonica as a navigator and then uh, in 11-12 I wasn't. And it was actually really enjoyable, quite refreshing to just get up sailed as hard as you can for four hours and then go back to bed again. But I think at the end of that campaign, I, I, I certainly did miss the sort of responsibility of navigating and, and sort of being really central in what's going on and what's happening and all that sort of stuff. So I guess, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the race. I did not navigating, but I certainly think I've, I've sort of sought out that responsibility and, and, and that pressure. And, and yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's a great spot in the boat to be because because you're you're involved in so many different things and and it sort of covers such a wide range of of sort of skills and areas and all of that sort of stuff it's uh yeah I, I find it really interesting and uh you know especially now we're back into development boats as well it's sort of it's good it's just really yeah i mean i love it it's great but um i guess one of my strengths i think as, as a navigator and, and, and certainly sort of put me in quite good stead in the last couple of races that is that people see me as someone and they can drag up and deck and put on the wheel and do a bit of sailing so uh i guess it's uh you know i didn't i didn't get to say you just spend all day on a computer so i, I actually very much value the time i get to do on deck and, and sail and, and all of that and actually sort of moving into the mockers it's, it's sort of great to to be one of the one of the key sailors as well as the guy responsible for looking at the weather and the strategy and all that sort of stuff i i can definitely see why it's so rewarding when it goes right but the interesting thing for me is that um, if if a trimmer is making a few small mistakes, you're going to be going, you know, point one of a knot slower, and maybe the rest of the crew won't pick up on it. It'll, you know, you just sort of get get diluted in. Whereas if a navigator makes a couple of small mistakes, might be okay, might not be okay, and you know, I, th- this is where unfortunately I have to bring up a couple of things. So Telefonica Blue, you know, I think you know what I'm going to mention, but I, I think that there's a really interesting um, experience that I think all navigators have to sort of wrestle with is that what happens if the very small mistake that you, maybe you didn't make, but it's on your shoulders as the navigator, um, what happens if you do that? And can you sort of, you know, bounce back from it? So, you know what I'm talking about. For anybody that wasn't there watching that race, what happened as you guys were, were on that final uh, leg to uh, Stockholm? 
Yeah, well, well exactly. I've, I've done a heap of preparation for that leg as well, and, and knew where every every rock was in the archipelago. And 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 in that instance, we obviously hit that hit that rock, and it was only about a meter wide. We clipped it with a dagger board, and then the boat rounded up, and the bolt landed square on top of this meter and a half high rock. And eventually, we had to get dragged off. It was uh, yeah, probably not my finest hour as a navigator, but <laughs> certainly one I've learned from. But, but it, um, it, yeah, I mean, but at the end of the day, yeah, I you know I. In that case, we sort of knew where the rock was and, and the course we were on was good and I went to help with some stacking and all of that and then I came back when we'd sort of moved a few degrees, I guess, as was always the case. And, and yeah, we literally must have just, just clipped it. We, and we, in the moment, it was absolutely soul-destroying and I think afterwards I pretty much shut myself in the hotel room for a few days, turned off all social media and, uh, and uh, made sure Maria, who was our, my wife, who was also our logistics manager, made sure that the... Uh, Make sure my credit card was in hands of the shore crew, which were working twenty four seven, so they could have a good party when we left. And hey, yeah, but that was that. But no, I mean it's you know I, I obviously felt terrible and felt terrible for the team, and uh, and you know it was it was yeah it was difficult, and especially as on that campaign, I was one of the younger guys on the boat. I was you know still I think I was only thirty years old at that point, and and on my second race. But uh, you know you learn from your mistakes, and uh, and and they always sort of give you experience make you stronger and hopefully a little bit wiser and uh and yeah i mean sort of five races in looking at my sixth now it's it's all these experiences i think that's got me to the point where i am today so uh i'd obviously rather not hit that rock but <laughs> but maybe i'm a better navigator for it now so uh, we'll chalk it all up to experience well so somebody has to stand up you know somebody has to take the responsibility of 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 those high pressure positions there's going to be mistakes. It's, it's going to have to be somebody. Um, if I can ask one more question on it, it, it was fascinating, I think, how everybody could empathise with with being that person who didn't, you know, call the boat up a little bit more. Like you say, split second, one or two degrees, that was it. Because you're leading, everybody's in a line behind you and all the boats behind you go, oh, and they all come up. It, it, you know, it could have been anyone. And I remember um, Ken Reed. And you guys were in the fight for second with with uh, uh, Puma, and him saying as he was sort of sailing past, you know, looking back, and I don't, you know, I know there are competitors, but that is totally unfair. I don't care if there are competitors or not. That is not right. I remember that there was a quote from uh, Bauer Becking. And him saying, you know, it's happened. You know, we made a mistake. Um, we're all pretty cut up about it. Um, I think the person who's most sorry is uh, Sci-Fi. He said sorry about a thousand times, but we're a team and it happens. I'm really intrigued, if you don't mind me asking, what what did he do in that situation with you? Because everything that you've described about feeling terrible and all the rest of it, whether it's 100% your fault or not your fault, you're always going to feel like that as a navigator. What did the team do around you then? No, I mean, yeah, everyone just, you know, were very supportive and said, you know, just put it past you. Let's go on, just keep keep going, carry on. And, uh, yeah, and, and that was it really. It's sort of, yeah, there, there, there was support. There was no, there was no chat about, you know, blame or, you know, you know, we didn't really, you know, it didn't even need debriefing. It was kind of like everyone's looking forward from this point, you know, it's happened, it's happened, let's strike a line under it and, and crack on and, uh, you know, we got the boat fixed. The shore crew did a pretty amazing job of, of getting us on, and we all got on the boat, and we, you know, we were behind, but we raced hard all the way to Stockholm, which was, 
which was good. And, uh, you know, and then we, you know, put a good effort in the, in the, in the following leg. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough very personally. And I sort of <laughs> took it on the chin a bit, but no, everyone around me was very supportive. Bauer and, and all the other crew actually, you know, but, you know, there was, there was sort of no mention of blame or what if, or, you know, anything like that. It was just, well, let's just keep looking forward, do the best job we can in the, in the legs we got remaining. I, I can imagine that, you know, things like that happen from, you know, all those months of building that team and kind of building that respect um, and, and that understanding of, you know, what the other person's position is like, which is why it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, the next edition that you did did do, you were in that that trimming role. How much has that helped your ability to run the numbers, feed the performance to the team and sort of, you know, get them to do what you need the boat to do tactically? understanding look i know what it's like to be on that watch to be a trimmer to be sort of chasing those numbers is that a useful skill to have as a navigator yeah i think absolutely no it's it's very you know you can it's easy to get too sucked into the theoretical and what the numbers say and all of that and and or oh, i'd like need to like to start this course or do this course or, or you know this wind angle but sometimes you can't or sometimes it's slow or doing something else is faster so you know i think one of the keys to doing a good job of navigating is being really in tune with with you know the performance of the boat, what's possible? Can you sell your numbers? Can you not? Is the sea state doing something funny, or you know, is there less wind or more wind than, than we thought? Or you know, and all of these all of these little factors make a difference, and that kind of all goes into how you deal with the short term. So uh, no, I think I think really it does make a big difference. I think being being in tune with what's going on in deck, and and it's actually really not you know the the, the race we did with Abu Dhabi. I was obviously in, involved in the watch system as well, and and sort of. You know, did four on, four off like the rest of the guys. Sometimes it was four on, then another four on when it got busy <laughs> in the race. But uh, you know, that's that's by virtue of being a navigator and the kind of how, how life works. But uh, getting getting on the deck and getting on the wheel and all of that is always really good for clearing your head as well. I mean, I've, I've spoken about it a lot with with the guys I've been in the team with. I think there's there's definitely pros and cons for being in and out of a watch and uh, actually being a being in a watch for, for a bulk of the race is actually quite quite good, I think, and actually helps my navigating quite a lot. So, uh, no, it was, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, being, being part of the sailing is really important. So in, in terms of you, you know, you sound like you prefer to be involved in that sailing, in the watch, as you say. What about in terms of the decision navigationally? Do you prefer to have one, two people that you can throw some ideas around or you do you prefer to be look the buck stops with me i'm deciding which way we go oh it very much depends on the situation i think um you know it's always good to have a good discussion and, and a bit of a dialogue and I, and I think you know with abby Dabby, that's one thing that always worked really well with uh with ian we'd always have a really good discussion and, and he'd always be really good at throwing out the sort of what ifs and uh, being devil's advocate i know he likes to be the devil's advocate so you know he was always very good at that and i think uh that actually meant we, we missed very little, you know, we, we were always on top of the situation. So it's always good to have a discussion, but, but then there are times when you see something and, and you feel very strongly about it and you, you have to say that we've got to do this, you know, for, for these reasons or whatever. So it's, it sort of depends a bit on the situation. There's, there's always a bit of ebb and flow, but uh, you know, there's, there's always times where, where you're very certain that you have to do something or something's critical. You've got to jive now, you've got to tack now. And, uh, and uh, you, I think, yeah, as an navigator, you've got to be, you know, have the uh, the authority to say that or call it or, or, or you know be definite i think sometimes if you hesitate you know no sometimes no decisions worse than the wrong decision so <laughs> yeah. 
uh, yeah, it's it kind of dictated by the situation you're in. But uh, but no, it's, I think I think you know it's obviously nice to bounce ideas off people and have a good discussion. But uh, sometimes when you know you've got to do something, you just got to yeah <laughs> put your best foot forward and do it. Let's talk about your approach then to the 2014-15 one. Um, you know the addition that you guys, like I say, I mean it it was a really strong performance. But one of the things I think is remarkable about it, or maybe not that remarkable when you look at the scoreline from the last edition, the winning boat didn't win that many legs. And you were quoted as saying that from the outset, your plan was to be um, consistent, you know, maybe even conservative in in how you were sort of, you know, approaching it. Why did you arrive at that was the way to go? You know, the small things, let's, let's play this one safe. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was always the philosophy of the team. We kind of we kind of looked at it and said, you know, if we can we can try and podium every leg, then uh, we're probably in pretty good shape. And uh, and that was always our goal. We sort of always were looking to to make sure we're in the top pack. Didn't take too much risk. Didn't do anything stupid or anything like that. And actually, by virtue of the fact that you know we had a great team and and we had really good boat speed, and that that made that job all the all the much easier. I mean, it's it's very well being a great navigator, but your job is made a million times easier by having a fast boat. And, uh, you know, even though it was one design and, and the performance between the boats is more similar, we were quick. And in certain conditions, we were really quick with Abu Dhabi, which, you know, we could, we could often turn to our advantage. So, uh, and, and then when you're fast, it does, it does allow you to be a bit more conservative, but yeah, I mean, our, our philosophy as a team and, and, and as sort of our philosophy sort of navigating and strategically and, and often discuss this with, with Marcel, who, and Chris Bedford, who helped me on the shore, was, you know, just it was the sort of mentality about staying in the peloton and staying in the league group, not doing anything too risky, not too making too many mistakes. And then when, you know, if you're in that front group all the way through the race, there'll be an opportunity where maybe you can go for the victory, you, you know, you can win it. But often you see these races and, and especially with the with the one design where everyone's so close is everyone travels around in a pretty tight pack and then someone will break something or someone who's something risky and I fall off the back and then the pack's a little bit smaller and it kind of gets whittled down as you go through the race course. And, and yeah, I guess our, our sort of plan was always to try and just not be one of the boats that gets whittled down and, and be in that last little pack and then hopefully have the opportunity to win. And uh, as it worked out, actually, probably two of the legs I wanted to win the most, we actually managed to win, which was leg one into Cape Town and the, and the big Southern Ocean leg. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a nice result. We talk a lot about the one design and we talk a lot about some of the things that have changed and how that would change how navigators would approach things and sort of your role. One of the things that doesn't come up in conversation that much, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has been a bit of a step change, has been the AIS on the boats. So everyone has to be broadcasting under AIS, which means as a navigator, normally if you were within a good close contact with another boat, you'd be able to go, oh, we're pointing a little higher, pointing a little lower. Am I right in saying that AIS gives you more ability to compare and contrast with, with the fleet now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, yeah, the, the, the first race we did with the 65s was the first race that we had AIS on all the time. And, uh, you know, you got like eight miles of range, sort of best case probably where we had with the 65s. And, yeah, when you're close to a boat, you can – you know, we have all the averages there on the screen. You can see who was faster over two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, and uh, it's, it's it's a very useful tool. But you have to sort of learn to use that tool, and uh, also know it can be. Uh, I think sometimes when people are driving a trim and working hard on deck, they don't, they don't like too much scrutiny. <laughs> Getting told that they're faster or slower every two minutes can be quite stressful for them. So, but um, and it's also very true that 
you know, when we do two boat testing, you line up however many meters apart and, and you know, you might be 50 meters apart. And then after a couple of minutes, you decide you're in different breeze and you've got to restart the test again. So you have to sort of take all that, that AS data with a pinch of salt, but it is a really useful tool about evaluating a performance and, and making sure you're always doing the, the, the best thing. Sort of when there's a persistent trend, you know, you have to react to it or do something. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's certainly been a game changer. And it probably, because you can see the other guys, it probably, and you can see their mode, it probably sort of steers everyone to sort of stick together a little bit more. Well, that, that was kind of what, what I was wondering, because obviously the first time that the 65s came round, everyone was getting incredibly excited about these unbelievably close finishes. And then in the last edition, the second time of the 65s, what seemed close in 2014-15 was, was, you know, huge gaps. I mean, the last edition we had boats finishing, I mean, famously within boat lengths at Newport, but almost every leg it was a couple of hours and you'd get a whole bunch finishing. Is it just the AIS? Is it the one design? Is it, like you said, that, that gamble, I don't want to gamble too much. Why have we seen the fleets get closer and stick to similar tracks? I think one of the re- I think the one design is one element why everybody sort of sticks together a bit more. I mean, I guess when we were racing in the in the seventies or whatever, everyone had slightly different polars, they had different sails, the boats had different strengths. So you kind of have to do your routing and sail the course to your strengths. Whereas um, with the sixty fives, you know, essentially everyone sort of had the same the same and the same strengths and the same weaknesses as a boat. So it kind of herds like the routing probably steers everyone a bit closer together. But, but at the same time, it's still amazing that, you know, you'd race for days and days and then, you know, you'd all run out of wind and everyone ended up in the same part of the ocean again. And you'd all start again. It, was, it, would like, it, it did amaze me sometimes that it, it, it happened that often. Uh, we'd all end up regrouping. <laughs> Is that for and, and, often, and often things get complicated. You, know, you can sail quite happily for weeks on end in the ocean in good breeze. And then as soon as you get close to land, things get complicated. You run out of wind and then all of a sudden, everyone's on top of each other and, uh, and you start a race again in the last five miles. So <laughs> certainly made for some exciting finishes. I, I, I'm, I'm not an offshore sailor. You know, I've, I've, I've never had the stomach for it. Um, I've never had the stamina for it. I'm, I'm all about the inshore and I get frustrated when that happens on an inshore course. When you're set, you know, when you've invested sort of two, three weeks in this lead and then it evaporates because of a wind change. Do you find that frustrating? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, for sure, and and I think you feel the stress as well of just you know when you're when you're trying to hold a lead or hold a position, you know, and you've got people breathing down your neck. You, uh, you know, I think I think sort of subconsciously it's quite stressful. It's always quite a relief when you finish a leg and you get on shore and you don't have that feeling of like someone breathing down your neck. That whole time. <laughs> with with the stress, so one of the things that um, we get to enjoy a little bit when we're following the race is this um, position reports. And, you know, because of the OBRs on board the boats, we get to see that moment where typically the navigators, sometimes the skippers will come up and say, right, we've been performing like this. They've been performing like that. We're losing, we're winning, whatever. And you can see the reaction from the sailors' faces. On that, on that thing about stress and trying to get the best out of your sailors, how often do you twist the info that you're feeding your sailors? How often do you maybe sugarcoat it? maybe just just flat out ignore some bits or do you always go honesty is the best policy um i don't think you can sort of twist the numbers too much but it's, it's always in a context and uh yeah you can there's a lot in the delivery shall we say <laughs> <laughs> do, do you find yourself warning i mean I'm, I'm guessing that as a crew you already 
have an inkling as to whether you are below your your goal speed or whatever you know you you know whether you're going to get a, a bad sked yeah i think so i think you know and uh yeah i think the delivery kind of gives it away whether you're happy or not i think if you run up on decks you know all emotional jumping up and down saying you had a terrible scare then everyone's going to sort of react to that so uh you know I, i've always tried to make sure that sort of the delivery is fairly objective and uh and yeah and making sure people understand the context i think if people feel kind of clued into what's happening you know when we should be gaining and and maybe when we should yeah you know, when we are going to just naturally lose miles or whatever then it, it kind of makes it a bit easier but uh yeah i think of you know one of the things i've learned with 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 doing all these races is is for me personally it's it's, it's very important not to get on not to get on the emotional roller coaster and every skid come in and be like elation or despair it's, uh, <laughs> if everyone's just if every if every uh, skid's just okay that that's all good and uh, yeah, I think I think that sort of reflects on how you, how you tell the other people. So uh, <laughs> I've certainly said with people who, who do get on the emotional roller coaster and then would deliver a position report and then never enough to come down and go, how bad was it? Ah, that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's interesting hearing those little skills and and you know the interpersonal skills maybe, but but some of the big navigational skills as well because you know you have done five ocean races. That is a lot. Um, what could you? what would you what do you look back you know at that very first uh, race you did in in five six and what do you go man i mean i i didn't know this i didn't know that you know I, can you see what was missing in your toolbox back then yeah i mean it's it's amazing I, i'm amazed when i think about now and doing that and we we did some pretty smart things in that race but i think about it and i just like yeah it's a, it's amazing how much more experience i've got now especially, especially in terms of the weather, I think, you know, is, uh, I think I've, I've learned so much about the meteorology and the fine detail and all that sort of stuff over, over the course of, of five races. But, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing to think now that I managed to do as maybe as well as I did with ABN Amro based on what I knew at the time, if you see what I mean. But, but, but that said, we had a great team and I was actually, and back to that race, I was really, really lucky for my first race to be in that team and, and working with a, a great group. It was there was no better environment than for someone to come in and learn to be a ocean race navigator than that. We had Stan Honey on the other boat, who's you know got a pretty stellar record. Mike Quilter was like helping us on the shore, who I think is the only navigator to have, to have won the race twice, maybe. Um, and then uh, Ken Campbell from from Commanders were helping us, and, and you know we went around the world and. and on, on all the stopovers there'd be four of us in our in our little container working together and uh you know it was it was a it was a great a great um adventure and opportunity and and, and i'm very grateful for those guys for like obviously uh teaching me everything i needed to go to get around the first time so well and it hasn't stopped yet um so let's let's talk about the next edition uh 2022 so this is going to be a little bit different because you're lining up to get going on one of the fully crewed Imokas. Um, in terms of sailing skill, I mean, we've been talking to some of the sailors and it's been interesting to hear about, you know, how rough and ready and sort of gut-wrenching the ride can be on a foiling Imoka. In terms of navigationally, is there a fundamentally different way that you think you approach it? Um, no, I think... Um... I think you sort of approach the navigation in the same way, 
But uh, yeah, it's definitely a lot harder. It's not like you can sit in the nav station and be comfortable and uh, and sort of focus on what you're doing. I think, you know, so some of the stuff I've been sort of trying to figure out in the last few months is actually like where you sit on the boat and how you, you know, spend the time trying to focus on the weather. Because like, <laughs> it, is, it is, yeah, it's amazing. You can get shaken about all over the place and actually gas stairs on the boat, they're much smaller to what you used to do and there's not really space for a nice dedicated nav station areas. But um, I mean, the fundamentals are still the same. Um, but, uh, obviously it's, yeah, it's more of a bumpy ride and there's less people and, and, and consequently you, you're sort of busier from that perspective. And, but I mean, the, the fact that it's going to go back to a development boat will change things. And I think the, where we got to with the 65s was basically foot hard on the floor all the time. Whereas with this, with the sixties, they, you know, they're, they're powerful boats and, and we will be able to break them if we push too hard. So actually having that skill to know when to push, know when to push the boat hard and, know when to throttle back and, and look after the boat is going to be super important. When you, when you go back and look at like the old Whitbreads um, and it's fascinating to see how the, the route has changed and like all purists, you go, oh, let's, let's bring it back to just four legs and and then you realise, well, the boats are so fast now, you know, the 65s, the 70s, the, you know, the, the, the Whitbread 60s, they're so quick that the route has to change and the way you sail change. Back in 74, you're looking behind you for the weather because it's chasing you now we're going fast enough that we're sort of we're actually trying to you know we're getting into things in front of us is the mockers in the 60s is that enough of a speed jump over the 65s that again you're you've got some different moves on the chessboard or is it still similar to the 65s it's just a, a, a slightly slightly faster yeah, I, I'm not sure we're like quite into sort of multi-hull territory where we can like chase down a weather system yet, like the old teams can. I mean, they've got an interesting problem now when they go around the world is that, yeah, they, they struggle to stay in one weather system. Like the, the key to getting a good world around the world record used to be get on a good weather system and carry all the way across the Southern Ocean. And those guys now can actually outrun, outrun one. So then they start to run out of breeze. I mean, I, I don't think we're quite there yet with the 60s, but, it, but it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge dealing with the foils, especially. I mean, we've seen uh, it's been it's been interesting watching the beginning of the Vendée Globe and John Lacam and an old boat with no foils has had a much more direct route at a slower speed and is just only just now out of the out of the top three positions, which has been been really really impressive. And it shows that you, you know even with a lot of speed, you know you can you can cover a lot more miles, but it doesn't necessarily get you down the course quicker. So understanding you know the, the performance of the boat and and actually in some cases, yeah, how fast to go or how much to utilize the foils might be important. It's going to be. Uh, it's just certainly going to be an interesting challenge. And, and the other thing that, that the foils sort of throw up is is sea state. It has a massive effect on performance. In flat, you know, you see all this footage of of uh, them the the mockers doing the azimuth challenge, and uh, and they're they're all flying up in the air in, in perfectly flat water. But it's uh, it's a very di- different situation when you're uh, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, and, and how fast you go is very much dictated by sea state. So th- there might be a case where where uh, you know you're, you're trying to avoid big sea state because you can actually go faster, and it's also the case as well that you you can most likely go faster in a lot less wind. So, so there might be the opportunity to, to sort of sail a few more miles, but at slightly more, or I won't say more, that much more comfort because it's pretty uncomfortable all the time. But but you know more miles in slightly less wind in, in slightly less hairy conditions might be might be preferable to the shortest route. It's really interesting you mentioned. Really interesting you mentioned Sea State. I was going to bring it up because I, I got a chance to speak to um, Juan Kuriamjan, 
uh, 1K and he was talking about his experience with, with the Amokas and how differently stacked and balanced they needed to be if you were running square or running 45 degrees or, you know, down with the waves. Um, as a navigator, do you think, oh, great, I've got more opportunities here. I've got more more, more um, things to worry about. Or is it a case of, God, I've got a, I've got a bigger headache? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like figuring out all this stuff with C-State and how much it affects your routing. It's, well, it's certainly like a, a headache at the moment. We're sort of thinking about how we're going to solve that problem. But, I mean, hopefully it's a headache that we can, in time, turn to our advantage. And, and you know, working with 11th hour racing now, we're, we're obviously saving already. And we've maybe got a bit of a jump on the rest of the fleet. So, uh, you know, time spent figuring that out and doing a good job of that, hopefully it might translate into an advantage in the race course, just sort of knowing the boat a bit better the potential and, and what you can achieve and when. So, uh, so yeah, all these things that are a headache are also a sort of an opportunity for, a, for you, know, you know, an advantage. So I think it's important to see them like that. But, uh, yeah, maybe it would be simpler if it wasn't a problem. But <laughs> what, about, what about the modelling? I mean, we, we hear so much about all the different wind models and I remember in um, when the race was in, Abu Dhabi, I think Ian was telling me about, you know, some special modeling for, you know, with the wind around there left over from the America's Cup and all this kind of stuff. But people don't talk so much about wave modeling. As a navigator, obviously, you know, you look at this all the time. Is the sea state prediction as reliable as, say, the wind? Um, probably not. And actually, you know, it's, it's funny. And I've spent an awful lot of time looking at the wind and I've generally been less concerned about sea state. To the point where often, only if it's a problem, I'll, I'll sort of look at the look at the forecast. But so, so all of a sudden now, it's like another thing we have to start evaluating a lot more and, and, and considering a lot more. So uh, I think, yeah, I, I'll probably be able to tell you a lot more in about two years' time when I figure <laughs> all this out. But uh, certainly, it's, uh, it's it's rising up the priority list to how the, the the models deal with the sea state. And uh, and the, the interesting thing about sea state is it can. You know, it can help you or it can hinder you and it can come from all sorts of different directions. I mean, we were sailing in Biscay upwind with a six-metre swell following us the other day, so we're surfing over 20 knots at times. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting challenge and certainly one that's going to require a bit of energy to figure out probably. Well, yeah, okay, that kind of energy. What about physical energy as well? Because there's less people on the Emokas and I'm not, I wouldn't in any way claim to be physically fitter than um one villa or you know kp i'm sure they could all floor me if they wanted to but with less people on an imoka is it more important that somebody in the navigation role is physically up to the task of trimming in a way that maybe they wouldn't need to be if they were on a 65 yeah, I mean, I think so, yeah. And I just one of the big things with the Amoka boats is injury prevention. You get slammed and bashed around so much. And, you know, even being in bed can be quite uncomfortable at times. <laughs> and, and the potential for injury sort of exists, is ever-present, if you feel what I mean. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be fit. And, you know, as, as a team, we're, we're spending a, a lot of time and energy on, on making sure we're fit and, and, and flexible and avoiding injury. And, uh, and it's, it's as important for me as a navigator as anyone else. And it's funny, I'd actually sort of thinking back to when we first went to one design, I was, I think that sort of, as a navigator at that point, I kind of saw an advantage in, in 
being trying to be fitter or fitter than the others or, or healthier or whatever it is. Just, you know, obviously the fitter you are, the quicker you recover, potentially the less sleep you need. And, uh, and I've always sort of thought about it in the context of, you know, I mean, being able to make decisions under pressure or, or when you're sort of in sort of slightly suboptimal state. And then you, you listen to all the, all the studies about how you're actually legally drunk after missing X amount of hours of sleep and, and how less creative or worse a decision-making people are when they're sleep deprived. And it's pretty much the state you exist in the whole time when you're, when you're racing offshore. So uh, just trying to sort of have that level of fitness so you can, can be a little bit better in those situations, I think is, is really, really important. And I, we're going to hear a lot about sleep, aren't we, from the 60s. It, that seems to be another thing that's pretty hard to do on this boat that's bucking around. Yeah, yeah, sleep or, or lack of. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's difficult. And, um, I mean, obviously the Vonday guys, you know, you, you, we're going to see some pretty impressive pace for them at times, I think. But um, they sort of, I think they're looking to look after their boat and get around the world, whereas I think whilst we're going to have to, you know, measure our performance and not destroy our boat trying to go flat out the whole time, we are going to be pushing pretty hard. And when the Vonday guys are sleeping, the pilot's driving and just sort of taking care of things or whatever. And, and when we're trying to sleep on an Amoka, there's, there's two guys on deck trying to wring it, wring every last ounce of performance out of it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not always that conducive to sleep. <laughs> uh, it will certainly make for a very interesting next edition. Um, as somebody who's, who's done two on the 65 um, and that 65 being sort of lined up as a, I mean, you know, not in any way diminishing anybody sailing that 65, but there's, there is also a nice opportunity with the rule in terms of the diversity of gender, age. It's going to be easier for people to jump on board a 65 than it is for the 60. Um, what would you, for somebody who says, oh, I, I, I want to do the 65s, you know, you were a young guy, you sort of got your foot in the door, kicked it open, you know, got yourself there. Is there any sort of little bits of advice to give somebody who wants to try and chase down a role in the next race? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I really hope that the 65s do present some new opportunities for guys because it has the race has always been really difficult to get in, get into. And, you know, it is a bit of a club, you know, you see the same guys in different shirts every every three or four years' time and we all kind of move around and uh, and, and it is, it's not for nothing. You know, experience is obviously vitally important, but... Um, but uh, yeah, it is nice to see new people getting into the race and opportunities into the race. And I think the one thing the race has always lacked is a sort of a pathway into it. So hopefully the 65s will provide that. And, and But it, it's still difficult in terms of sort of advising someone on on how they get into it. it it's, it's, you know, even getting to that 65 stage is, is kind of difficult. It's amazing when, you know, sort of getting immersed in a mock world, you look at, you look to what's going on in France and there's, mini transats and the figaros and class 40s and they will sort of graduate up to the mocker and there seems to be a pathway which i guess the ocean race lacks a little bit but um i mean i guess i'm sort of testament to the fact that that you you, you can get there through you know big boat sailing and and you know trying to meet the right people and, and putting yourself forward and and and, and actually you know there's, there's there's plenty of good guys out there who follow that pathway. So it's, it's really about, yeah, getting out there, getting out racing and, and get on the big boats, take your opportunities. I mean, I think one always, always try and be the like least experienced guy on the boat. That was always sort of kind of one of my mantras. Unfortunately, <laughs> the right one age of 42 now, that's pretty difficult. <laughs> 
Uh, Simon, thank you very much. It's really, like you say, it's fascinating to hear that it's possible. It's not, it's not guaranteed, but it's possible with, you know, asking the right people and, you know, being keen enough, it is possible. And, you know, look how far you've come. I know you, we're going to see you in the next edition. Um, fingers crossed. You mentioned that, you know, there was one other navigator that, you know, the only navigator to win the race twice. Perhaps maybe we can start setting some new records with uh, someone like yourself. Thank you very much for talking to me tonight. Thanks, Mom. Great to speak to you. <laughs>